Well, today we are beginning a new series in the book of 1 John. And uh, for those of you who like for our series to have uh, catchy titles, I think you'll be pleased with our efforts. We have creatively titled this the 1 John series. So you, uh, you cannot get that kind of creativity just anywhere. And I know that's one of the reasons that, uh, that you're here is for the, the creativity of the sermon titles. Uh, much of what I shared today is going to be a setup uh, for the rest of the series. And I want to give us some uh, brief background uh, to the book of 1 John. And I want to spend a good part of the morning sharing the circumstances uh, of the Christians to whom John wrote this letter. They're uh, very interesting circumstances surrounding this letter. Uh, it was written by John, that's the Apostle John, uh, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, the same John who wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, the date of the writing is probably somewhere around A.D. 100, uh, which makes it one of the later writings uh, of the New Testament. Uh, it's believed that John wrote this while he was in Ephesus, uh, which is in Asia Minor, which is basically modern-day uh, Turkey. And it's believed that it was written for the benefit of the churches, the benefit of the Christians in Ephesus and the areas uh, surrounding Ephesus. And there were a number of problems facing the Christians in and around Ephesus that occasioned John's writing, and that's what we're going to spend a good deal of our time on today. I think it's really important uh, as we come to this book that we understand those circumstances in order to fully appreciate what John has written and the things that we'll consider uh, throughout this series. The first problem is that the Christians in Ephesus, at least many of them, were no longer living with the same commitment and passion that had marked the early church. Uh, as I just mentioned, this book was written uh, in 100 AD, which was about 70 years or so since the resurrection of Jesus. It's getting to be a little bit of, little bit of time now since uh, those events of the early church. And, and so while there were still first-generation Christians around, such as John, this letter was written mainly to second and third generation Christians. The point is that the initial thrill of Christianity for many folks was gone. And for many, Christianity had now become a thing of habit. Uh, so this is one of the circumstances that was facing uh, the church at Ephesus and the surrounding areas. The second problem facing the Christians that John wrote to is that many of them were tired. They were growing tired of the demands that Christianity placed on their lives. Have any of you noticed that Christianity is a pretty morally and ethically challenging faith to live out? You haven't noticed that? That's a problem. <laughs> I, 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 let's participate now. How, how, how many of you have noticed that? Yes. It's a morally and ethically demanding faith. I apologize. I know it's hard to tell when I actually want you to respond and don't. So it, it's on me. Christianity is. It's a morally and ethically demanding faith. And in John's day, much like our own, uh, the culture in which Christianity existed was not very morally or ethically demanding. People did what people throughout human history have always done, if not constrained by some greater allegiance. They did whatever they wanted. 
<laughs> they lived however they wanted to live. And these second and third generation Christians had started to feel that the moral demands of Christianity were simply too much. They required too much effort. It was too difficult. You know, sometimes it's easier to tell a lie than to tell the truth. It's usually not easier down the road somewhere, but, but in the moment, it's sometimes easier to lie than to tell the truth. It's easier, and it's a little more fun to gossip rather than be the one who stops the gossip. There's just no fun in that at all, <laughs> being the one who stops it. Nobody likes you when you do that. You miss all the news. It's not near as much fun. It's easier for a good number of human beings. They find it easier. They find it more exciting to, this is an adult group. Well, I guess there's a couple of middle schoolers in here, so I'll be careful. It's easier to be friendly with as many people as you can find to be willing to be friendly with you than to limit yourself to being friendly with one person, your spouse, for life. So Christianity, these Christians were determining, just required too much effort. It was too morally and ethically demanding. And here's something that was true in the early church. It is supposed to be true for Christians at all times. That those who truly encounter Jesus Christ are changed. They're changed. They become new creations. And when they become new creations, they start to actually live like new creations. And they become people who are concerned to live in a way that pleases God morally and ethically. They become people who are committed to Christ above all else. And here's what that means. That means that Christians end up being different than everybody else. They end up being different than the rest of the culture. By the way, Christians are supposed to be different. <laughs> if there's no evidence in our lives that we are different than the culture around us, something is wrong. The whole call that, that is within uh, the entire Bible, the, the whole call to holiness to be holy is a call to be set apart. Christians are to be set apart people. We are set apart to Christ, for Christ. And this makes us different. And the believers John wrote to were tired of being so different from the rest of the culture. They did not want to keep sticking out so much. They didn't want so much attention for being different. They wanted to be like everyone else around them. Being different is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. And they were tired of being so different. Often when we get background on New Testament writings, we share something about uh, persecution that Christians were facing. But it seems that the situation in which John wrote this letter did not involve any outside persecution. And yet there was a very real threat to the church anyway. 
Instead of outside persecution, the threat came from within the church in the form of those who felt it was time for the Christian faith to change. There was a desire within Christians at Ephesus and the surrounding areas to make Christianity more intellectually respectable. That whole foolishness of the cross thing was starting to wear on people. They, they didn't want to be folks anymore whose beliefs were uh, so dismissively treated by the rest of the culture. There was a desire to bring Christianity up to date with secular philosophy and contemporary thought. And an interesting thing is that those seeking to change the faith were not outside the church, they were inside the church and they very likely, the, the most charitable view of them is that they very likely saw themselves as trying to save the church from irrelevancy. Another problem within the church at this time is that uh, Christ was actually being denied by many within the church for a variety of reasons. Gnosticism had infiltrated the thinking in the church. And if you are familiar at all with Gnosticism, you know that it considered all matter to be evil. And so one of the things that it caused Gnostics to believe, uh, to, to do, is to deny the dual nature of Christ. To deny that he was both fully human and fully divine. What would usually happen is that they denied his humanity which completely destroys the God-given understanding of what happened on the cross and of who Jesus is. Often the Judaizers, the Jewish believers uh, who were a part of the church but were often still more beholden to Judaism than they were Christianity, they would deny the Messiahship of Jesus. And so the Jesus the apostles had borne witness to, the truth about Jesus was being denied and attacked within the church itself. Gnosticism also caused other problems in the church. Because Gnostics believed that all matter was evil, they responded to this belief in one of two ways. Either they would attempt to live very ascetic lives, they, they would deny themselves basic pleasures of life, they would try to beat their bodies into submission because they felt like engaging in any pleasures, any physical pleasures of life, damaged their ability to fully realize the spiritual life. That was one way that Gnosticism got applied, but there was another way in the exact opposite direction. The others said that because all matter is evil and we live in a material universe where we cannot escape matter, what we do with our bodies does not matter. It's irrelevant. Matter and what we do with our bodies has no bearing on our spirituality whatsoever. And so it seems the Christians John wrote to in this letter were more influenced by this second expression of Gnosticism and it had influenced a very casual attitude towards sin, including sexual sin. So the initial thrill of the early faith had waned. They were tired of the ethical and moral demands placed on them by Christianity. They were tired of being different. Many felt that the faith needed to be updated and keep pace with the times 
the person of Jesus was being attacked. Either his humanity was being denied, his messiahship was being denied, his deity was being denied, and there was a casual attitude towards sin. And so I have a question for you. Does any of that sound familiar? (laughs) In my humble opinion, it perfectly describes the situation within much of the church in our present time. And so this letter probably has something to say to us today. American churches are full of second and third and fourth and fifth generation Christians who don't have the same zeal for Christ and the faith as what their parents or grandparents or great-grandparents had when they first came to faith in Jesus. Those of us born into Christian homes, I'm afraid, sometimes look at being Christian the same way that we look at being Americans or being German or being Hispanic. We think we're just born Christians, but we're not. It's been said that Christ has no grandchildren. He only has children because we're not a Christian because mom and dad were Christians. We have to come to faith in Jesus on our own. We have to choose him for our self. And I worry quite a bit actually that churches are full of second and third generation Christians who aren't actually Christians. Who haven't actually been regenerated through personal faith in Jesus, have not actually passed from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The church is full of people who have grown tired of the moral and ethical demands of, Christian, uh, of Christianity. They're tired. They're so tired of being different. And so they've stopped trying. If you see them in the conduct of their Monday through Saturday lives, there is no difference that Christianity makes in how they practically lived. Or in the same situation as the church John wrote to in the fact that there are so many who are within the church or at least loosely tied to the church who see their mission as saving the church from itself. They want to make Christianity more intellectually respectable. They want to bring it up to date in some way. They want to make it more compatible with secular philosophy and contemporary thought. You see, these people write a lot of articles that get a lot of shares on social media. And the articles usually have a message, a tone, something like this. I'm going to be a little colorful, hopefully not too much. I want to be part of the church. But the church just sucks too much for me to allow my wonderful self to be associated with her in her present condition. You've seen these articles. I know you have. They say things like, if you want awesome me to be at church, here are the 47 things you're going to have to change. (laughs) They all essentially amount to this message. The problem is you, not me. I imagine that most of these articles are feverishly typed on Sunday mornings. 
in their pajamas in their apartment, way too cool and spiritually enlightened, to actually join with the misguided people at less than perfect churches around the city who are actually doing things like teaching little kids about Jesus or welcoming a visitor or praying for someone who happens to show up at their less than perfect church. Worse still, you see this kind of sentiment, this desire to change the church, to change the faith by people holding faculty positions at Christian colleges and seminaries, and you see it among Christian pastors and priests in their churches. Jesus' divinity is questioned or outright denied, even by many in the church or in theology departments of both secular and Christian universities. And the church is increasingly populated by people who have determined that they're free to do whatever they want with their bodies, including violate every sexual ethic contained within the Bible, and they've determined that this has no bearing on their spirituality whatsoever. So yes, the situation into which John writes is very familiar. I would say it almost perfectly aligns with the situation we're facing in the church Overall, the, the, the larger church, the wider church, and I don't mean that to exempt our church, I just mean our church and the, the broader church, perfectly describes it. Of course, these problems have been present throughout church history. It's not like this has never happened before, but it does seem to me like it's especially strong today. At least I think it's the strongest that it's been in my own lifetime. And so this is the situation into which John writes. And so today I want to look at just the first four verses of 1 John as we begin to study what John has to say to these Christians in the situation that I've just described. 1 John 1, 1 through 4. Here's what he writes. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our, and some translations say your, joy complete. Now, the entire letter or book of 1 John is an appeal to believers in the situation that we have discussed this morning. But here in the beginning, in these first four verses, John is not wasting any time. He starts right from the beginning with his appeal. You, you notice that a lot of the epistles start with, hi, how y'all doing type of a vibe. You, you know, and there's none of that here. There's no, uh, hey, I, John, an apostle of Jesus Christ, greet you along with all of the believers here in Ephesus. There's none of that. He, he gets right to it. He starts appealing right at the beginning of the letter. 
Now, now before we look at these verses more closely, I do want to say that, that even without a greeting at the beginning of this book, 1 John is known to be a very personal letter. He's, he, he's writing this to people he knows pretty well, and it's actually that fact that might uh, account for why there's no greeting here. It might have just not been necessary with the closeness of the people uh, that he was writing to. I also want to let you know that the tone of the letter is almost certainly that of a loving father appealing to his children. Uh, the tone isn't stern, but caring and perhaps even a bit pained. There are four things, four appeals that John makes in these first four verses, at least as I see it. And here's the first one. John calls them back to simple faith in Jesus. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, the life appeared. We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The word of life is a reference to Jesus. If there is any question about that, it's answered by John writing, the life appeared, which was with the Father, and appeared to us. So we're talking about Jesus here, the word of life. The one who appeared, John says, is the one which was from the beginning. So we're talking about Jesus. Jesus was from the beginning. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God, John is saying. He says multiple times that he's only writing about what he's seen and heard and touched. He's reminding them that he personally saw, personally heard with his own ears the audible voice of Jesus, and that he personally touched the physical Jesus. The line, we proclaim to you the eternal life, contains both an affirmation of Jesus as the eternal one and also serves as a reference to the eternal life that is available in Christ. That's the whole point of proclaiming Christ is that men and women might have life in him. And so I think it's fair to summarize the first two verses of 1 John something like this. The eternal one, the word of life, which is Jesus, appeared among us to invite us in to eternal life. Now I want you to think of all of the challenges that we've talked about that he addresses in just these first couple of verses or so. He, he personally interacted with and, and physically touched Jesus. So those who are denying Christ's humanity, John is already giving a response to, to them. No, 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 no. I touched him. I testified to this. I touched him. John calls Jesus the one from the beginning, proclaims him to be the eternal life, and says he was with the Father. So he's already answering any of those who were questioning the deity of Christ. He's identifying Jesus as the eternal one and identifying himself as the one who actually was with Jesus at the beginning of the church. So he's already starting to undermine those who are presumptuous enough to think that they have a better plan for the church than the one that came from the eternal one that John was involved with when the church was formed. It's the one who brings eternal life. He's already answering those who deny that Jesus is the Messiah. 
With the challenges facing the church today, a call back to simple faith in Jesus is needed. A reminder that the faith is not ours to shape and change and play with in order to uh, suit the sensibilities of our time. But instead, it is grounded in the eternal. What it is was set, the course was set by the eternal one. The New Testament is the record of those who were there at the beginning of the church telling us what's important, what has to be defended, and what has to be preserved. Christianity is not ours to do with as we wish. It is a sacred trust that has been delivered to us by Christ and the apostles. It has been preserved throughout church history. It has been handed to us, and now we have to preserve it and hand it to future generations. We would go a long way toward this. We do go a long way toward this. When we refuse to be drawn into the desire for intellectual respectability. When we refuse to allow ourselves to be so insecure that we just have to have the approval of secular philosophers. We just have to have the approval of all of the smart people who are the movers and shakers of contemporary thought. And instead, we stay focused on the most main and plain thing that we find in the Bible. The eternal one, Jesus, appeared among us to bring us eternal life. John calls them back to simple faith in Jesus. And John assures them that they can be absolutely certain about Jesus. You see, those who wanted to change the church then, and those who want to change the church now, they love complexity, ambiguity, and uncertainty. They thrive on it. They they can take the, the simplest and most certain truth, And by the time they are done with it, your head hurts. And you're not even confident the sky is blue and the grass is green anymore. Now, I am not suggesting in any way that things like Christ being fully human and fully divine are so simple to grasp. The church has spent its entire existence marveling at and working to grasp these truths. But the basic proclamation, the basic affirmation that Christ is both human and divine, that Christ is the Messiah, is not that complicated. Uh, Understanding the claim, affirming the claim, is actually quite simple. It's the how that gives us some some space to wonder and and, and figure out and, and wrestle with. But the proclamation of who Jesus is is not itself hard to understand. John is both affirming the deity of Christ, that which was from the beginning, the humanity of Christ, I've touched him, 
And he's also saying to those who are wanting to change the faith, no, no, I was there with Jesus at the beginning. All of your wild speculations, all of your denials about the basic things about the faith, you cannot get away with this because I was there at the beginning. I saw Jesus. I heard his teachings. I was actually with him when he put this thing into motion. And so the Christians of Ephesus and the surrounding areas, he's saying, don't listen to those who are speculating. Don't listen to all of these wild philosophies. Listen to me because I was there. I was an eyewitness. And I'm telling you, you can be certain about the things I say because I was there when it all started. And John and the other New Testament writers serve that same purpose for us as they did for those people that they first wrote to. They are eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus and the start of the church. And so anytime someone finds their way into the church, they, they come along in the church and they start teaching things that are clearly at odds with the Bible. It's always an easy decision to make. Go with the eyewitnesses. Go with the eyewitnesses. John assured them, and he assures us, that in a situation where the basics about Jesus are being challenged, you can be certain he is who he claimed to be. He is who the apostles claimed him to be. He is fully human. He is fully divine. He is the Messiah. He is the eternal one who came to save us. You can be certain of this. The third appeal John makes is this. That Jesus, catch this, that Jesus and what is true about Jesus is the basis of Christian faith and fellowship as well as the key to joy. And we're going to talk about joy here in a minute, but Jesus and what is true about Jesus is the basis of Christian faith and fellowship. Verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now, I see in this a gentle warning to those who are trying to take the church in a different direction. We've seen that John has affirmed the humanity, the divinity, the messiahship of Christ in the first two verses. And now he says he's proclaimed only what he's seen and heard, only what he knows to be factually true, so that they may also have fellowship with us. It seems to me that John desires, he wants to remain in fellowship with everyone, including those who are causing problems in the church. But he needs everyone to know that the basis of fellowship is Jesus and what is true about Jesus. It's true that Jesus... I'm sorry, it's not true that Jesus wasn't fully human, like some were saying. It's not true that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, like some were saying. It's not true that Jesus wasn't divine, like some were saying. 
And so John is saying to them, and it extends to us, that our faith and our fellowship with one another has to be based on Jesus and the things that are true about Jesus. We can't just say anything about Jesus and claim that we have fellowship with one another because of Jesus. I also consider it an honor to stand here in my home city. (laughs) Uh, uh, Our fellowship here at VCC is based on Jesus and what is true about Jesus. And that's an important distinction. Because there is great pressure within the church today to accept anything and everything that anyone says as long as they slap the name of Jesus over top of it. By the way, my intention is to match John's fatherly appeal. If I sound more um, stern than that, it's just reverting to my natural state of being. But I, 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 my, my desire is to sound appealing. So, all right. Here's what's so sad. And what makes our present time in the church so challenging. Many who have the label Jesus over their lives have created a Jesus of their own imagination, not the one, not the one that the scriptures reveal to us. Fellowship is tied, yes, to our common faith in Jesus, but to embracing what is actually true about Jesus. At some point, fellowship with those who want to change the faith, who, who want to make Christianity more socially acceptable, less morally demanding, more intellectually respected, cannot continue without compromising what cannot be compromised. Jesus and what is true about Jesus is the basis of Christian faith and fellowship. And it's the key to joy. You say, Brian, I noticed you titled this sermon for your joy. Like, I think you're almost done by the clock. Where's the joy? Here's the joy. This is the last appeal that I want to share today. Everything that John writes in these first four verses and throughout the entirety of this letter, he writes it for the purpose of securing the believer's joy. Verse four, we write this to make our joy complete. As I already mentioned, some translations have this, we write this to make your joy complete. The idea is we write this so that our joy together will be complete, so so that believers will experience joy. And while it's only the final point of today's message, I did title the message, Joy to You, because this sets us up to understand and receive from the rest of the letter. This letter is all about John desiring for us joy. In the midst of a situation within the church like I've described, which I I think at least most of us agree is very similar to our own situation, 
John writes to them in that kind of situation because he wants them to have and experience joy. He wants their joy to be complete. He doesn't want them lacking for joy. He wants them to have a full experience of joy even in the midst of all of the challenges. And so this tells us a few things that I think are important as we embark upon this series. First of all, it tells us that joy is God's will for us. Joy is God's will for you. John wanted joy for those he wrote to because he knew that it was what God desired for his people. And not only does this tell us that joy is God's will for us, it also tells us that joy is attainable. Joy is attainable. I I think many of us view the apprehension of joy, not that I know a whole lot about this thing I'm going to mention, but we we view the apprehension of joy kind of like chasing a pig. You've seen that, you know, there are people, I guess, who actually do this. You know, they they get put in a fence, someone oils up a pig, and then they tell the the human to chase the pig. Uh, Why anyone agrees to this, I don't know. But, but you've seen this. They, they chase the pig around. They have a hard time getting to the pig. Finally, they get to the little pig. They, they think they have him. They've got their arms around him, but then he squirts out from their arms. <laughs> Squirms out. Whatever S word you prefer. The pig is so slippery that he escapes the grasp. And I think we kind of think of joy like this. It's elusive. Uh, Even when we think we've finally got it, then it slips our grasp. But John believed that joy was attainable. And we see this through the Bible, that joy is attainable, even in difficult circumstances. You remember the whole story of Paul and Silas singing praises to God in prison? Joy is attainable. And it's not based on circumstances. John writes this letter, and we have to keep this in mind. I want you to keep this in mind throughout the rest of the series. He writes the letter toward the goal of helping us attain joy. He writes because he wants our joy to be complete. It's attainable. Here's the last thing I want to say, or almost the last thing I want to say. He wants us to experience joy... But here's something else that John is going to to make sure we understand. And that is that joy doesn't come the way the world says that it does. And what we're going to find throughout this letter, and really we find this throughout the entire Bible, is that the path to joy is a counterintuitive path. It doesn't come the way we think. It comes through conforming to Christ. Not like, hey, just be free. Just be who you are. That's not the way it comes. It comes through conforming to Christ. It comes through self-denial, not self-affirmation. It comes through serving, not being served. It comes through things like what we'll talk about next week. When John writes in chapter 2, My dear children, I write this to you, so that you will not sin. The uh, great 
theologian William Barclay says that there are two main purposes for which John writes this letter. The first one is so that they will have joy. The second one is so that they will not sin. And of course, those two things go together. You want to have joy? John is going to say to us in this letter, don't sin. What? Now that is some odd advice right there. So we're going to be learning from John over the next few weeks. And again, his letter is largely toward the goal of helping us to attain and live a life marked by joy. So my hope is that as we embark upon this series, you will keep in mind that it is for the purpose of your joy, and you will be willing to accept, be willing to learn that the pathway to joy is much different than what the world tells us it is. And friends, if we're honest with ourselves, that should not be a very difficult idea to be open to. It really shouldn't. When you look at all the years that many of us have tried to find joy in the ways that the world says it can be found, and yet we still don't have it, we really should be open to trying something different. And so my prayer throughout this series is that we would receive from John's writing what God wants to work in our lives, that, that his writing would accomplish its purpose, would accomplish its goal, and that we would attain and begin to experience the life of joy that God wants for us. Let's stand.